So that is a woman called Tsetsrechma. She's an inner Mongolian throat-singing diva and the folk band Under Union. Now, the Handspring Puppet Company of Cape Town will be working with her on a piece about wolves set in inner Mongolia. We chatted to them a while back, that's the Handspring Puppet Company, to the founders Adrian Kohler and Basil Jones, and I asked them what creates the life force of a puppet. Michelle, I, I suppose when you construct a puppet, you've got to you've got to give the audience enough of a horse, shall we say, um, to a- allow them to, to, to enter into the negotiation of suspending their disbelief because they come very skeptical to a piece with the, with the P word in it, with the puppet word. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we, d- we did a lot of research. We discovered that, of course, the, the ears and the tail of the horse are its emotional indicators and the eyes are what are its window on the, in, into the world. And, and so with those three elements built into a rather kind of cranky pain and, and, and metal structure, um, we, we managed to, to, to find that trigger. Which, which releases the audience's imagination. And once you have that, once they've agreed to, to go with you, then they start providing their own knowledge of what the horse is like. And, and, and it becomes a combination of the performers, which have to be, of course, very, very, very tuned to one another. They're three in a horse, and they all have to act as one horse. Um, so there's the skills of the, the performers, but, but the combination of the live audience in that moment is what makes a horse um, obliterate all the manipulators for the person to clean the seat. And I think that was the thrill of War Horse. Um, it was, a, it, it was a, a, a different experience. Uh, we interviewed someone about at what point did Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, become human, become sentient beings. And it's such an interesting space, that, because it does start to... Uh, look at various different concepts of what it means to be sentient, what it means to be human. And he, of course, raised the idea of around um, culture and community. And I'd like to, Basil, just talk to you about community of audience. It took Adrian buying a puppet in Johannesburg uh, that turned out to be a a puppet from Mali, uh, a completely different tradition, nothing to do with Punch and Judy, nothing to do with uh, the Muppets, uh, I did some research. We were living in Botswana at the time, and I found out that there was a very ancient tradition of puppetry in Mali uh, connected to uh, the emperor of Mali and the gold empire, really, that ran right across uh, North Africa. Um, and, and the minor arts were supported, and puppetry was one of them, and it became quite a major art there. And I suddenly realized that puppetry could be a lot more than um, what I thought it was. And, and that's what allowed me to step into the possibility of starting a puppet company. What the puppet does really, it prostheticizes your emotion and your, and your thoughts into an object. Um, you, you, put, you pour yourself into a, an object, a, a performance object. And, and in doing so, you... Uh, you're using a huge leap of imagination and the audience comes bounding towards you <laughs> with their imaginations and together you create something very exciting. And uh, I think when, when the audience is made to be, jump through hoops and, and has to work in order to make something, uh, to believe in something, it's, it's more exciting for them. And that's 
that's one of the things that uh, that we do, and we are no better than uh, than a giraffe. Um, and and uh, one of the things that we are kind of saying uh, with with puppetry is um, we we are we are saying animals have been absent from the whole of the theatrical canon. Um, one of the things that our art form can offer theatre in general is a a kind of a tunadrum uh, with the animal kingdom, and that's sort of what, when what's, we move from explain, Johannesburg explain to Cape Town. Explain the word tunadrum. Coming together, huh, uh, like a common ground an approach. Yeah, uh, the theatre canon has no animal in the centre of a piece of theatre as the main character that yeah. goes from the beginning to the end. And in a way, we realised in retrospect when we did the Chimp Project, um, that was the first project we did, uh, sort of post Kentridge. Yeah. And then the giraffe, uh, the giraffe project, tall horse, and then war horse, and now the elephants. We. What we're doing is we're, we're, we are putting an animal as, uh, as an animal, not as a, as a type of human, but as an animal um, mm, at the center. Uh, in the middle of a piece of theater, as the main character in a piece of theater. And I think that's, that's uh, a kind of thing right for the times, yes, uh, right I for agree. our times, uh, to be acknowledge, acknowledging animality. And it's a kind of also... An, Equaling uh, between ourselves and animals, we we, um, we there's no difference really. That's Adrian Kohler and Basil Jones of the Handspring Puppet Company. We're looking back at 2020 at our guest presenters, people with purpose, what it is that they have done, how they think about the world with regards to their purpose, but also to what they can learn. Interestingly, uh, the Handspring Puppet Company, as I was in that interview, have featured a, uh, a, a, Muppet, a, Muppet, a puppet called Little Amal. She's a 3.5 meter tall giant puppet representing an eight-year-old Syrian refugee. And uh, next year, early, she'll embark on an epic 8,000-kilometer journey across Europe to highlight the plight of young refugees. And it's certainly a story that will follow closely because it is one that has great poignancy but also talks again to the idea of purpose. One of our guests uh, this year was Professor Tuli Madoncella. She convened the second annual Social Justice Summit as the Law Trust Chair in Social Justice at the Law Faculty of Stellenbosch University. And she said that the event came at a time when ordinary South Africans were more in need of social justice than ever before. I asked her what leadership meant to her. I understand leadership to be the art of influencing and inspiring yourself and others to think and act in a particular way. It's an art of some sort. It involves influencing, it involves inspiring but it starts with influencing and inspiring yourself, then influencing and inspiring others. And then you inspire them, they've got to think in a particular way and act in a particular way. Leadership could be what you do and what you say, but ultimately people are more likely to do what you do. For example, in South Africa, the Constitution expects a particular way of leading uh, it talks about democratic governance, not government, governance, <laughs> meaning that the architects of our democracy always expected a partnership between the people and those who exercise state power and control over state resources. 
it was supposed to be a partnership. And in other words, people, the people's role was not just to elect every five years and then disappear. It was a constant dialogue on what needs to be done. Is it being done in the interest of the people? Is it being done in accordance with the constitutional vision and principles? And then thirdly, that didn't always work out. When I was part protector, I found that issues around, for example, governing for social justice had flown out of the window. And leaders never mentioned social justice, for example, even though it was right there in the preamble that we, the people, adopt this constitution to heal the divisions of the past and establish a society based on democratic governance values, social justice, and fundamental human rights. So basically, whoever governs was supposed to govern according to those three things. Yeah. Are you doing it in terms of democratic governance? Are you advancing social justice? In, in other words, are you reducing the poverty and inequality that you found in the system? And thirdly, are you advancing the equal enjoyment of all human rights? You spoke about this idea of partnership, the partnership between civil society or citizens, rather than just civil society, but citizens Mm. and Mm. their government. So that social compact is something that I think a lot of us question. Is the social compact there? Does it need to be re-looked at? And if it needs to be re-looked at and really reactivated, what would be the actions required to do so? Thank you, Michelle. The social compact is not holding, and partly because I think we never went back to take the preamble, as my university is doing, by the way, mm. and say, okay, this is the basis for takeoff. Yeah. And what does it mean? I mean, it's done with university. We're putting a huge plug on the preamble because we think, honestly, it's less possible that you'll disagree if there's an agreement on where are you going and what are the principles that will govern your partnership. Yeah. And that's what the preamble gives us. Where are we going and what are the principles that will governing that will govern our work together. And I think that's where we've we failed. We do need to see it. And it's said that government is pushing ahead, for example, with the recovery program, and, and it should, because it, we're in a hurry. But I do hope that it will leave room for us meeting as soon as possible as a nation, in little groups and eventually in a big group, to agreeing on this big reset and say, how do we use the very same constitution as our North Star? Yep. Professor Tuli Madoncella, in June we spoke to Raymond Perrier, a director of the Dennis Hurley Centre, which is a multi-faith community centre working with the homeless and urban poor in Etiquani, KwaZulu-Natal. He spoke about what it meant to move from the corporate sector to the Jesuit Institute and now the Dennis Hurley Centre. My experience in the corporate sector 
was was both observing leadership and then being in positions of leadership. Yeah. Um, and as a consultant, I was usually working with chief executives and, and CFOs and so on. So I was, so was seeing leadership uh, up close and personal. I mean, the, the very first business person I met in South Africa was Johan Rupert. So, so, so those are the kind of people who I, was, I got the chance to observe and saw some great models of leadership, saw some terrible, terrible models of leadership. In the Jesuit Institute, I had the chance to, to take that experience add to it some of the, uh, the, the, the Jesuit insights over four centuries about leadership, much of which we now see in the life of, of Pope Francis, mm. but also draw on other religious traditions. And I think that's one of the great things about South Africa is that there is this fantastic uh, uh, partnership and uh, uh, coexistence between the different religious traditions. And now in, at the Dennis Hurley Center, I'm having to put that into, into practice, uh, yeah. both being a leader of this organization and working with other leaders in the city, uh, government leaders, uh, NGOs, leaders, faith leaders. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm a great believer that uh, leadership, of course, is something that we all do all the time. Uh, you don't have to have a title to be, uh, to be a leader. Uh, it's about how you behave and how you influence other people. I was interested to read that you were a trainee Jesuit priest, and I wanted to ask, not um, knowing much uh, or not a lot about um, the Jesuit faith, did you choose to not become a priest and to leave the Jesuit faith? What, what was the decision? Yes, so, so the Jesuits are not a separate faith. The, the Jesuits are a, a, a regiment, if you like, of priests within the Catholic Church. And as I hinted earlier, the, the most famous Jesuit in the world now is Pope Francis, yes. the first Jesuit ever to become, become Pope. So, yeah. so, so Jesuits are very much at the centre of the Catholic Church, but also at the margins of the Church. So part of the, the tradition of the Jesuits is to work in some of the, the edgier areas of ministry. Uh, so, for example, the Jesuits have got a fantastic NGO working with refugees around the world, including yeah. in, South, in South Africa. Uh, the Jesuits have, uh, have done lots of really interesting educational work over the, over the centuries. But the Jesuits also, for example, have led on things like ministry to the gay and lesbian community. So, so, so they do things which uh, uh, perhaps take people a little bit outside their comfort zones. Brilliant. So, uh, so I encountered the Jesuits when I was living in New York and running this huge uh, ad agency on Fifth Avenue, 160 people, I mean, you know, managing these enormous accounts. I, 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 I stumbled into the Jesuits. Some would say that God drew me there. And, and that really changed my life. Um, I joined the Jesuits and was training with them for six years. Uh, the most phenomenal, phenomenal uh, experience, uh, including two years working in a refugee camp in Uganda. Um, and I decided after those six years, I didn't want to pursue the the, uh, the line of becoming a priest, but still wanted to stay very involved in the Catholic Church and in, and in Catholic charities, uh, teaching people to stop and listen to the silence and listen to those inner voices, the voices that we, that we often avoid because we're scared of what they'll say to us. So let's find out a bit about that. What does faith mean for you? And if we look at the concept of teaching people how to pray and reflect, it does not necessarily mean that you are praying to a God, whatever the case may be, but it is a communion between yourself and a greater force, whatever the case may be. Tell us a bit about what that means for you. So I suppose I have a very, a, a very conventional view. I, I'm a believer in, in the existence of God, not, mm. not an old man in the sky with a beard, but rather a, a, a preeminent, uh, uh, the preeminent force, the mm. source, source of everything, uh, which means the source of every human being, not just me, but every human being I encounter. And that's the first challenge. How do I treat every person I see as, uh, as the face of God? Um, and I, for me, I see that very much as a, 
uh, as an invitation and a challenge. So, so for whatever reason, I happen to have been born into a very comfortable uh, environment, uh, fabulous parents who I hope are tuning in from, from, from uh, uh, the UK via, via the, uh, the streaming service. Very good education. So my sense is that I've been given those gifts, not because I deserve them, but because God wants me to do something with them. Yeah. So the question I'm always asking myself is, well, what does God want me to do with them? Not just in the big, in the big picture, but every day. Every, open, open a new window every day. What is it that God wants me to do with these, this time, these talents, this opportunity today. Um, so I suppose for me, faith is very much about purpose. Yes. The purpose of my life and, and the frame with which I encounter the people around me. And that, of course, was none other than Raymond Perrier. In October, we also spoke to Dr. Taddy Bletcher. Taddy Bletcher is the CEO and co-founder of the Maharishi Invincibility Institute, which is a multiple award-winning educational institute. But he also started, uh, co-founded the Branson Center of Entrepreneurship with Sir Richard Branson and is working with the Department of Basic Education on E. Cubed. I asked him, how does a teacher see an individual in every student? Firstly, um, this is my life passion and my life purpose. So uh, it's is, is seeing, seeing the greatness in every single individual, and especially in young people. And um, I've been blessed, you know, over the last 25 years. I used to be an actuary and a management consultant. Gave it all up, and as I say, I went to work in Alex Township and uh, then Soweto, Davyton, and we started the first three higher education institutions in the country. And, uh, you know, in, the, in this time, I've worked directly with over 30,000 youth, and um, we, we've helped over 19,000 unemployed youth that are largely marginalized and sidelined in society that society would say are useless, not good enough for university, etc. Et mm. and, and we've helped those individuals uh, develop their potential, given them access to, uh, you know, education and caring and accreditations and opportunities. And we've had over a 95% job placement rate um, over a 20-year period now. Um, our graduates earn just under one and a half billion rand in combined salaries. Uh, we estimate they'll earn over 41 billion. These are people thrown away by society. And uh, so what have I learned in that process? I've, I've learned what I learned about myself in my own life. And what I've now seen working with over 30,000 uh, kids is that everybody, if they're given the chance, if they're given the love and somebody sees them and somebody recognizes them, like you're saying, somewhere deep inside you tilt that balance because... Often we grow up with very low self-esteem and we don't believe we're capable of anything great. and We don't think we've got any real contribution to give to the world. And if somebody comes along that can just believe in us and, and just believe in you and, and then somehow deep inside it can kind of tilt that balance and so you make the right decisions, uh, you know, every moment you're making decisions and if you just make more right choices that are going to take you in the right direction, those are we've seen, what we've seen with youth and there is nothing, absolutely nothing that the kids in this country cannot do. And I've witnessed it firsthand and I've given my life to it and uh, they're just as great as anybody in China, India, America, UK, Germany, anywhere else. But the role of the teacher is very, very important. I'm laughing here because, you know, when you go through the list and you talk about the young people and the numbers, uh, 
the, the that you've reached with the work that you, you've managed to do and the teams that you've worked with, etc. That is so typically an actuary where your me- <laughs> your metrics are about the numbers, and of course the numbers are critical because if you're going to get business partnerships, then they want those metrics. It's like what is our return going to be? Your unit of of measurement is a young person, and yet that young person is. So many different things and not just a number, and it's like it's it's a, it's complex. It's very important to track uh, what you do because you've got yeah. to be able to show real impact. It can't just be talk, and uh, you, you know that's a waste of time. And so, uh, yeah, I was a, a wild youth, like uh, many many people, and uh, influenced a lot by friends and going drinking all the time every night, always getting uh, sloshed out of my mind and going to classes that that's. Uh, and, and, and really, again, coming back to this issue, not liking myself uh, much and uh, feeling quite, quite lost. I learned to meditate. I changed my diet. I changed some things about my life. And I had radically different results. And I went from being the worst student in actual science at, at university and I ended up being the top actual student in the country for honors amongst five universities, won the gold medal. And um, I was the fastest qualifying actually in the country in two years, starting from zero. Um, and it really came from deep inner change um, in, in, inside me. And, 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 and so um, when we started our first free higher education uh, college university um, called CEDA, and we had no computers, and our first 250 students arrived, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to start studying, and we didn't have a single computer, and I kept telling them how important it is to use technology. And we ended up teaching them to type on a photostat of a computer keyboard. It was... Just an idea we got at the last minute, a little brainwave, how are we going to teach them computers? So we photostatted a computer keyboard, and every day they would learn to type on the QWERTY keyboard, and I would sing them songs. And uh, the first song I started with was uh, Bob Marley's Redemption Song. And I always would say to them, nobody but yourself can free your mind in terms of freedom, overcoming the legacy of South Africa, our, our feelings of inequality inside, our, whatever we feel. Um, only ultimately can we go on a journey to free ourselves. Looking back at the year 2020 and some of the extraordinary people with purpose who have been our guest presenters over the last year. And what a difficult choice it's been to make all those uh, uh, choices for today's show, really. We've had such incredible people. We're going to our news break, we're our sports break, and when we come back, we'll give you a couple more. Looking forward to joining Ms. Zykon on SAFM Sunrise tomorrow morning. We'll keep you updated on all the news. We're continuing with our look back at 2020, some of the great interviews that we did as guest presenters joined us on the show, People with Purpose. Mamuna Skoltz is uh, someone who works for Where Rainbows Meets. It's a Cape Town-based community support organization that was responded to the worsening COVID-19 food crisis. When we spoke to the organization, they had helped over 10,000 people in the Western Cape, including areas in Steenburg, Lavender Hill, Rimfasmark, Overcome Heights, Hillview and other areas. Mamuna was certainly one of those interviews that opened our eyes, our ears and our hearts. I asked her about how she grew up. 
I grew up with a family. My mom was a domestic worker. My father was in the motor industry, a panel beater. It was a challenging life for us as children because she was the second wife. We did not have a luxurious life. Um, we grew up in the same settlements, like um, a house like the people live in the settlements, the shacks. Um, but it was a beautiful shack inside. You know, it was like, looked like a brick inside where my father bolded. We faced many challenges as children because there were three wives within the, the, the life of my father. And if you know, as the culture of the Muslims, that they believe in having three many wives, I could not understand it as I grew older and asked many questions to my mother. We did not have an easy life as well. We, you know, nutrition, food and everything else was concerned. Um, most of my siblings did not complete school. I did not complete school at the age of 17, you know, due to the uh, constant boycotting and that my father felt that what's the use of going to school and you're more at home than at school. And he decided that I should stay at home. And yeah, I became the little housemaid in the house, you know, I had to cook, clean and, and do everything. Maimone, you talk about the fact that you didn't finish school, that you were expected to work from home. And yet you then shifted your life into uh, or onto another road. You took uh, the fork in the road. Tell us about that. Yeah, look, I was at home most of the time. I did a lot of reading. I, I watched movies. I, you know, I became inspired by others and what they achieved in life. And I wanted more for myself, you yeah. know. And, yeah, it didn't happen only in, in my late 30s. You know, I was already married. Yeah, And I just decided one day that this is not the life I want for myself. I raised my three sons, they went to school, and I was all alone at home. My husband was working, and I was very bored. And I looked at my life, and I said to myself, this is not the life that I want for myself. I had dreams, and it is dreams and goals that I wanted to pursue. Tell us about those dreams, and tell us how you pursued them. I was sleeping one morning, and then my brother-in-law came, and his friend and they normally used to come there for tea in the mornings. And I wasn't in the mood that morning for anybody because I looked at my life and, yeah, I didn't want that life for myself. So they pushed me out of bed and said, look, there's a place called the Newman Foundation and they will really help you. And I felt really bad that morning because my life just felt that it was it came to an end, you know. There was no dreams, there was no goals, there was no passion. Yeah. And but the two of them they were so eager to motivate me and they pushed me out of bed and I said, Just give me a chance and I got all dressed up and they took me to the New Foundation and well, that is where my journey began. Mamuna, you show and uh, have expressed your own pain at uh, waking up one morning and not feeling able to even get out of bed. And I think that this is a the level of depression that many, many men and women are feeling in this country at the moment. And I wonder if you could maybe just talk us uh, through, as difficult as it is, what it meant to get out of bed. You say your brother-in-law arrived. What it meant for them to say, no, let us help you. Let us help you shift and change your world. I think when, you know, when someone has people that cares about you, it really means a lot. They really changed my mind that morning and saying you can still do something with your life. Hmm. You don't have to lay in bed, get up, dress up, and let's take you somewhere 
where you can really do something for yourself and with yourself. I had I wanted to do something and and be able to to help people. That has always been my dream. And going to the Newa Foundation that morning and just registering and enrolling myself for a ten week course. And within that course, there was a life skills component. Component, and that component wow. was you know where life skills was really the core that I needed to reshape myself and 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 just mold and and change my mindset in order to move forward in becoming the person that I really wanted to be the decision to throw everything into the air and to start working on where rainbows meet to create a community support organization out of nothing is is a phenomenal thing tell us a bit about that uh, Michelle, in 2007, I faced abuse at my previous workplace. And, you know, it was during the, the days of 16 days of activism where I raised awareness around that to women. And yeah. at that, during that same day, I was faced with a challenge. And just there, I decided it's time for me to quit my job and move on. And I wanted to start a business of my own. You know, that has been my dream is to be a, my, oh, have my own business and to partner it with my husband in the, in the panel meeting and motor industry. Yeah. But, you know, when I resigned, the, the community called me back and the community asked me what is going to happen to them. And the more I explained to them that the organizations are still there, they can still do the work, it's just that I won't be leaving. But the community wasn't happy with it, and they asked me to do something and work with them. Because what's the use of having the skills and not knowing how to implement those skills into the community itself? And then they asked me why I don't start an organization. Not having offices, not having equipment, only my resources, my material that I had. And I just felt this is not possible. They expect too much of me. Hmm. But, you know, in 2008, I had a group of youngsters walking from Freigrond to my house. And, you know, when you're at home, you sit in front of the TV, drink a cup of tea, you have that swell coat on your head. Um, and I looked out by the window and I saw these group of youngsters by my gate. And the only thing I said to my husband, oh, my goodness, look outside the window. And they came to ask me, please come back. And, you know, in January 8th, I went back into Freichron and an immense sadness came over me. It was quiet and isolated, and I didn't want that for Freichron because I fell in love with the community. The Rainbows Meet is a training and development foundation. We train people, we develop, we mentor, and we make sure there's a firm foundation in order for them to take ownership of their lives. Training through computer training, leadership skills, community development, organizational development. We have sports and recreation. We have aftercare programs. We have um, dance programs. We have our women's program, which is our sewing and beading project. We have our gardening project. Um, we have, you know, we have so many programs that anybody can be a part of. Nobody yeah. should feel left out. Mamwina Skultz, we interviewed in August, 
uplifting and extraordinary. And if you are one of the people that uh, is finding it really difficult to get out of bed, maybe you're more depressed than you imagined, don't forget you can contact SADAG at 0800 456 789. In September, we interviewed Minister Barbara Creasy. She's the Minister of Environment, Forestry and Fisheries. And uh, I asked her about the lessons that the COVID-19 pandemic is teaching us, especially when it comes to climate change. Michelle, I would I would say there there are three things that we can learn from the pandemic. So the first issue is what happens when things go wrong in nature. Hmm. Yeah. So um, some people call this the first pandemic, yep. um, and there would be there would be scientists who would argue that as climate change intensifies there will be repeated pandemics. Yes. So I think that, that the first thing that, that this pandemic teaches us is that um, little things that go wrong in nature can actually undermine the world as we know it. So that's the first thing. The butterfly think, wings it's sort of theory, that when the butterfly flaps its wings all the way across the world, it's that kind of theory. Well, um <laughs> I saw a meme that said, uh, if, if you thought that somebody eating a half-cooked bat couldn't change the world, think again. <laughs> yes. um, so, you know, I, I, I think it is the issue that, that um, uh, this disease is what we call a zoonotic disease. Mm. So it's, it's a disease that's jumped from animals to humans. And... Um, what we know about zoonotic diseases is that they are linked to situations where the relationship, the natural relationship between animals and humans is too close. Yeah. Um, and that comes about as a result of uh, environmental degradation and overcrowding. So I think that's, that's the, first issue, the first thing that we can learn. The second thing that we can learn from the pandemic is how quickly we are able to respond when we work together. So, you know, I I said in the beginning, I've been in government for 26 years, and my experience of being in the National Command Council was really interesting because all of a sudden, all the ministries and all levels of government were having to work together and work together really fast to be able to deal with an external threat. And, you know, one can debate whether we got everything right, and and we obviously didn't. But um, it's been a very interesting experience of government at all levels and in all departments having to work together quickly and very, very closely. Um, And I suppose that you, you can then say, well, we can take those learnings and we can do things around other things, uh, other big problems that we face. And then the third area, which I think that, that we are seeing across the world, is that across the world, as governments look at how we recover economically, the theme of sustainability and building back in a better way is quite common and um, uh, quite uh, out there in the way in which governments are responding. And uh, even in our own um, economic recovery process, 
um, as you will see in due course when the president announces, there have been ways in which we have tried to include concepts such as the, the circular economy and more sustainable ways of engaging in economic activity and productivity. So I think that um, these, these three learnings from the pandemic yeah. are really important as we go on to tackling issues such as um, climate change and other aspects of, of biodiversity loss going into the future. That's Minister Barbara Creasy. In November, we also spoke to A.B. Mohotsane, the Managing Executive of Brand Communications and Sponsorship at Vodacom. He spoke about the bursary, which is named after his grandmother, which he launched, and the impact that women have made on his life. The women in my life, even within my corporate life, have been the most instrumental in giving me the career progression that I've had. Jackie Connelly at SAB, Nuno and Chingila um, at Ogilvy and Mather, um, Terry Sutherland at BWV. These are all individuals that have been able to just give me that leg up, give yeah. me that opportunity. And I, when I started in the industry, in the advertising and marketing industry, there were four CEOs of major advertising companies. Um, and, you know, it was a really good time. I felt that the industry was doing well, it was booming, it was growing, it was expanding. And now, there aren't any. Hmm. So, so, you know, that, that for me is, is a real issue. And I think within the field of marketing, women are, are so much more effective in this field than being leaders in this industry because, as, you, as we spoke about later, earlier, empathy comes so naturally, much more naturally to women than it does to men. And in my industry, that's exactly what we need. We need to be listeners. We need to be empathetic. We need to understand where people are coming from in order to influence and lead them. Yeah. So I've always had that kind of context brewing inside me, and I needed to do something about it. And when my, my grandmother passed away um, in June this year, I just thought, you know, here's a really good opportunity to, to, to do something. And, and to be honest with you, I didn't really know what it was. Um, and then at work, we were doing um, a gender-based violence campaign, and our focus was Be the Light, and we were looking for men within the Vodacom environment to stand up and make statements around how they're supporting the fight against gender-based violence. Yeah. And one of my friends called me out and she said, but you're just making a statement. There's nothing you're doing. Hmm. Are you happy with that? And I was like, oh my word, you are so right. And really everything came together and I was like, I'm going to put my money, my money where my mouth is and I'm going to start a bursary named after my grandmother to find um, uh, uh, the next marketing uh, guru in the industry and it has to be a black woman. Um, and that is yeah. in my part to make sure that I can address the imbalance in the industry. And also my core belief that one of the ways that we can fight gender-based violence is the economic empowerment of women. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the only solution, but I'm just saying when women are economically empowered, they are much better able to stand up against the vagaries and find options and solutions um, that were otherwise not found if they, if they don't have that economic um, um, bedrock to be on. So I believe that I, I, can, I can make a small difference in my own little way. Abi Mohotsane of Vodacom. In closing, 
We chatted to Lewis Pugh in November as well, the endurance swimmer and United Nations patron of the oceans, also recently appointed the ambassador of the Royal Commonwealth Society. That service at Westminster Abbey, uh, and it was a service of celebration. It was 70 years of the Commonwealth, and Her Majesty the Queen asked me to give an address to the Commonwealth about the importance of protecting our oceans. And if you think about the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth is a collection of over 50 nations, And they are in every single ocean of the world. Mm. We have Commonwealth nations in the Indian Ocean, in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, in the Southern Ocean. And then we've got Canada, which is up in the the Arctic Ocean. But the thing about Commonwealth nations are that most of them have coastlines. We are linked by our waters. What I was trying to say to the Commonwealth on our 70th anniversary is that our Commonwealth is our oceans. And we often think of the Commonwealth as a collection of people, so, and it is, so of Indians, of Pakistanis, of Australians, South Africans, Namibians, Kenyans, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jamaicans, etc. But the Commonwealth is also the home of the polar bear. The Commonwealth is also the home of the emperor penguin, of the Great Barrier Reef, of some of the most incredible wildlife on our planet. And that was my message to the Commonwealth. We're talking to Lewis Pugh. He's just been made uh, and appointed the ambassador of the Royal Commonwealth Society. But not just that, he's an endurance swimmer. He's United Nations patron of the oceans. You know, Lewis, we were talking about um, what it meant to have a conversation with you. And, and I want to take you back to when you felt that your purpose was seeded. When did that happen? I don't think there was any specific moment. Yeah. So it has been a, gradu- a gradual awakening. So I've been swimming now for uh, nearly 35 years. I've swum mm-hmm. in all the oceans of the world. And over that period of time, I've seen our oceans change, you know, hugely. Yeah. And so, you know, initially when I started swimming, it was to be the first. Yeah. I, I was a pioneer swimmer. Uh, and when I started swimming, many of the famous landmarks had not been swum. Um, so it started off in that way. But when you go into the oceans and you see them change so dramatically as I have, then uh, I think, you know, there, there, was, there was one specific moment. I was doing a swim uh, down near Antarctica uh, on an island called Deception Island. And I started swimming across this bay. And then underneath me were literally hundreds and hundreds of whale bones, jaw bones, rib bones, spine bones. Uh, and some of them were piled up so high that when I was swimming, my hands would literally touch those bones. Uh, this was the epicenter of the whaling industry about 100 years ago. And I think after that swim, I, I said to myself, you know, I now need to be a voice for the oceans. I trained as a maritime lawyer. I'm a maritime lawyer. I'm a mm. swimmer. I'm in the oceans all the time. I'm seeing the ocean change. I need to be a voice for the oceans. Not just a maritime lawyer, but also a professor of law at the University of Cape Town as well, which I was very impressed to see. I think if I was studying, you know, you know, maritime law, I'd love to go to UCT just for that. You know, what you've touched on is this idea of shifting from ego to purpose. Um, you you started out by swimming to be the first, and as you say, pretty much all the oceans have now been swum, and now you need to. And you've been doing this now for a while, but now you need to demonstrate why this is important as someone who has gone through that shift and change but what does that change mean for you personally the interesting thing about swimming is that so in most sports the more experience you have the better you are at that sport yeah there's one sport though where the more experience you have 
the more challenging it becomes. And that is endurance swimming or cold water swimming. And the reason for that is that when you have been really, really, really cold, as I have been, you never quite warm up again. Okay. So in order to do any subsequent swim, I have to forget about what happened at the North Pole. I have to forget what happened in a glacial lake on Mount Everest. I have to forget Spitsbergen. I have to forget East Antarctica. Mm. I have to forget all these things in order to get back into the water again. Yeah. And so having a driving purpose, which for me is to try and protect the oceans, enables me to be able to do these swims. Yeah. But there comes a moment, and I don't know how far away it is, when I just simply won't be able to get into these waters. So recently I did a swim down in Antarctica to Mm. try and and, and show what's happening uh, in East Antarctica. And then afterwards I went to to, to Moscow to meet with President Putin's number Mm. two, a man called Sergei Ivanov. And I was walking across Red Square to walk into the Kremlin to start the negotiations. And as I walked across Red Square, I could literally feel every single cobble underneath my foot. So Red Square is huge, the mm. cobbles right the way across Red Square. But my feet were so badly frostbitten from the swim which I had done in Antarctica that I could feel every single cobble. And I was asking myself, I said, Lewis, Are you ever how much do longer this? can mm. you do this? I think you need courage. And mm. courage is an interesting thing. You, you know, you need to be able, on the one hand, you need to be able to put the fear to one side. Yeah. Mm. And fear can be absolutely crippling, especially when you uh, want to swim underneath the East Antarctica ice sheet down yeah. a river, as you explained. Because, you know, swimming down a river underneath the ice is uh, it's what we call a high-consequence environment. If things go wrong, they will go very, very wrong there. Uh, but the second thing is that courage is contagious. Mm. So I surrounded myself by a team of very, very courageous people. And that is none other than Lewis Plew. And we promise you plenty more guest presenters, people with purpose in 2021. And as he says, courage is contagious. I wish you the most contagiousness when it comes to courage for the new year. That's it from our team. It's no longer good morning. It's now goodbye, 10 o'clock.